O Lord, we do gather to sing your praises. We gather together as your saints to hear your word, the, the word that is a light into our, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We thank you that you inspired every single word of the scriptures. It is our guide to what we know about you and how we're to live in relationship uh, to our neighbor. Guide us tonight in our study of this scripture and this wonderful miracle that Jesus performed. We ask this in his precious name, amen. Well, turn with me to, to John chapter 9. I'm not going to read all the verses I'm going to be dealing with tonight. We're going to cover 34 verses. So we're going to deal with them as I go along. But <clears throat> this is another miracle of the Lord Jesus. But it is no ordinary miracle as we're going to see. And it is extraordinary on, on many fronts. And it deals with one of the most perplexing theological and troublesome issues that people have had over the years. Because here's the question. You, we, you may have had someone ask you this question. Why does God allow suffering? And what possible good could ever come out of someone being born blind. It's not fair. And how can a loving God allow such a thing to happen? Now, that is a question that people ask. That is a question that non-believers throw up into the face of Christians saying, what do you say about this kind of God? Jesus' answer is how we should answer people. And not only does this miracle deal with this theological question that I just posed before you, but it is a story of great courage over against cowardice. And as we delve into this remarkable story of this healing of this blind man, we see that God's distinct purpose that he has in having Jesus do this miracle. It's going to become very evident as we go through it. Now, look at the text in verse 2, the disciples, there is Jesus' disciples who ask him this question. They ask him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Now, they ask him that question, and that's, if you, if you notice... If you know the book of Job, you're going to notice that's basically, in a sense, the same question that Job's friends posed to Job. Because when all that tragedy fell on Job, what did Job's fri friends say to him? Job, you've had to have sinned that God would judge you like this. Well, he knew he didn't sin like this, but it was... That was their perspective. So their theological perspective was, you don't experience a tragedy like that unless you've done something to deserve it. So the disciples are asking, well, whose sin is this, that this man would be born blind? Was it the parents or was it that, that man born blind? Now, notice the assumption in the question to Jesus that the disciples are asking about this man's handicap. It had to be either his sin or the parent's sin. So Jesus, in verse 3, if you look at verse 3, Jesus answers their question. Now notice what he says in response to his disciples. He says, it was neither this man uh, sinned nor his parents but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that is Jesus' answer, and that is what our answer should be in part. When someone throws that up in our face, you don't understand what God has in mind for this affliction. 
Don't always assume that that physical affliction is the tragedy. There can be something greater that comes out of that. Well, first of all, the question is, did the parents sin or did that child sin? Well, first of all, you ought to think, does a child have any control over how they're born? Well, no, of course not. So it can't be the, the child's sin. Yes, it is true. The scripture says, it talks about original sin, that we have, uh, we're sinners by represent, being represented by Adam, and we have inherited a sinful nature from our parents. But there is a difference. We're not talking about original sin as such. We're talking about a sin that would deserve to be judged by God for now, regarding children suffering for um, due to parent sin, uh, let me just direct our, our, our minds to turn to Ezekiel 18 for a moment. And look at verse 20. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So, in that sense, that Children are not going to be punished because of the parents' unfaithfulness. There's not that direct correlation. Now, however, we do know this from the scriptures, that the whole, in the Old Testament, there was a whole generation judged by God for their unfaithfulness. For example, when they came up to to enter the land, Moses said, go in, God has promised you victory. You remember In Numbers 13, they didn't go in. They refused. They believed the bad report that came back of the 10 spies over against Caleb and Joshua. And they refused to go in. They had a big pity party. And they wanted to, they wanted to judge Moses and Aaron for, for what was happening to them. And what did God do? Well, first of all, God was ready to destroy them. And Moses had to intercede and ask God, don't destroy them. So what God says, all right, I'm not going to kill them right there, but I will make them wander for 40 years in the wilderness until everyone above the age of 20 dies. Now, when they wandered for 40 years, the children were with them. Now, the children suffered because of the unfaithfulness, but there was not that direct correlation between that sin and that they, the children were held responsible but they did suffer some. But what we're talking about and the question posed to Jesus was, was, that, was there a particular sin that deserved that judgment? And Jesus says, no, there was a reason for this man to be born blind. And what we're going to see is, you know, one of the parables of Jesus is the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus leaves the 99, and what does he do? He goes out to find the one lost sheep until he finds that sheep. And he will look until he gets it, but he will get that lost sheep. And we're going to see the greater purpose here, he's going to get this blind man. It was all for the glory of God, but we're going to see as well, this. uh, it was God's design to have this man born blind so that the greater glory of God could be revealed in that healing of that man. Now, first of all, talk about this. Jesus says it's for the glory of God. Well, if that's what was the, the purpose, that's predestination, isn't it? It was determined before the foundation of the world that this man would have congenital blindness so that one day Jesus would come and do this incredible miracle. And we're going to see what comes out of that miracle. Now, there are several applications that we can 
already discerned from this, and that is, one application is, we don't often know why we go through the trials that we go through, do we? Now, Romans 8, 28 is a great passage. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and called according to his purpose. And uh, you've probably experienced this in your own life, have you not? Have you gone through something very difficult and if you ask God, why, God, why, why am I, why am I experiencing this? I mean, this is really hard. And you've, you've wondered, you prayed about it, and then guess what? It could be months or years later you can realize, oh, now I see what God was doing. And it's for the greater good for me that I went through that particular thing. So just because there is a delay in certain things doesn't mean that God didn't have a great purpose and that oftentimes you and I realize that later on. Now, a a second application is this. It has to do with the evil decisions of parents to murder their children by abortion. Now, you've probably heard one of the reasons, if you've read the, uh, I don't like to call pro-choice, I like to call it for what it is, pro-death. Now, they call us pro-life, which is true, but we ought to call them pro-death because that's what they are, pro-murder. And one of the reasons given, and one of the, uh, for parents to murder their child And one of the reasons why some doctors will counsel a mother, you know, we think this child, we have possible evidence that this child is going to have this deformity. They're going to have Down syndrome or they're going to have some other deformity. So you ought to abort the child. Think about that. You're going to murder the baby, so that the baby doesn't have some deformity. So they think it's a tragedy that someone would be born with this. I've heard great testimonies of Down syndromes who have a, uh, some say, well, they don't have a viable life. They don't see that. Talk to some some that are more cognitive than others, and they, they, they like their life. And, and so you don't murder someone because of a deformity. I, people have gone, I went to seminary with a guy who they, they had a child born that was going to have to be cared for the rest of their life. But there is a purpose that God has in that. One of the great movies that you, if you haven't seen, I recommend you ever seen the movie October Baby? It's a very pro-life, it's a wonderful movie, pro-life. And it's about a woman who is searching for her natural mother. And her natural mother tried to abort her. And it was a botched abortion. So she was born alive and the mother gave her up for adoption. Well, she wanted to know, uh, the whole movie revolves around forgiveness. It revolves around her searching for her mother, finds her mother in this moving scene. Her mother is some big CEO. She comes in and introduces herself as the daughter she gave up. And the daughter says, you know, I've got a wonderful life. I'm here and here. God has done all this through me, and I just wanted you to know, I forgive you for trying to kill me. And the movie, she rooms out of the room, and the mother just falls to the floor weeping. Just because someone is deformed, you don't kill them. And you don't know what the glory of God, you don't know how God's going to use that person. And so this man who was born blind, there was a great purpose in him being born blind, as we're going to see. 
So this man was born blind to display, Jesus said, the works of God in him. And as we're going to see as we develop this, go through this, this great miracle, we'll see how that's how the glory of God was indeed revealed. Now we're going to see that this blind man who's healed, he's going to humiliate the Sanhedrin. He's going to show theological acuteness they don't even have, as we'll see. Now, verse 4 in our text, Jesus gives us a life lesson. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Well, what does that mean? Well, basically, it's the light is our lifetime. And the night is a reference to death. We work while we're alive. And in death, we cannot work. So Jesus is basically saying, we make the most out of the time that God has allowed to us. And we see here that in verse 5, Jesus then says, I am the light of the world. And it's appropriate that Jesus would make that statement because what he just do to this blind man, he gave him sight so that he could see. Now, but Jesus has a greater thing in mind when he says, I'm the light of the world. If you do a study of light and darkness in the scriptures, this is what you're going to find. <clears throat> light always conveys moral purity, righteousness, and darkness always reveals depravity. That's why in 1 John 1, 5, it says, <clears throat> in him, that is God, he is light, and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. So Jesus, as the light of the world, is the way to God the Father. And to see how God, uh, Jesus uses this, if you turn over to, to Matthew 4 for a moment, When Jesus began his ministry, he began it in Galilee of the Gentiles. And take a look at Matthew 4, verses 15 through 17. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and under the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So all these men, men and women who were sitting in darkness, meaning spiritual darkness, they saw a great light. Well, what, who, what great light? They saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. They saw that great light. And so, what did Jesus say if you see that? Repent. That's how you respond to this great light. And you repent of that sin and you come to Jesus. That's what is expected. Now, there is, in this miracle, we're told that Jesus told the man, well, Jesus reached down the mud, spit into the mud, uh, well, the, the dirt, and made some clay and applied it to the man's eyes and said, go wash him in the pool. Now, I don't think, and others don't think there's necessarily anything special about that, because Jesus, Jesus used various means of healing people. Sometimes he did that. Sometimes uh, he just gave the spoken world, uh, word. Uh, the woman that touched his hand, that had the hemorrhage for 12 years, uh, she was healed. There's no really mechanism for this. I think the basic thrust about this, of why this was done this way, is only because it was on the Sabbath day that Jesus healed this man. Because if you look at verse 14, just jump ahead for a moment in John 9. 
Notice it says, now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now, remember in John 5, 38, the Jews had been seeking to kill Jesus for what reason? Because he had the audacity to heal a lame man on the Sabbath. You violated the Mosaic law. You worked on the Sabbath. How dare you? So Jesus, there are several instances where he would heal on the Sabbath. I think for one reason is to point out how dark the souls of the Jews were. And Jesus says, I've come to do my work, my father's work. He works, I work. And this work of God was an act of mercy. Now, what we can see here from this, Jesus may have violated the law from the perspective of the Pharisees, but he did not violate the law of God. They thought he did. They said, you can't heal because healing is a work. Therefore, you violated the Sabbath. Now, just imagine, first of all, this man being healed, being blind, never ever seeing anything. Put your place in, put yourself in that, in his place. Imagine never being able, being born blind, you never saw anything, and now you actually see things. Can you imagine the joy that must have been in that man to see for the first time in his life? We know from the scriptures that he had to resort himself to begging just to make a living. It's interesting that the parents, we don't know if they had the capacity to support him, but he's out there begging. He has no way to support himself in some other way unless somebody uh, takes care of him, but apparently nobody else was taking care of him. Well, now what we see in verses 8 through 11 of John 9 is that the neighbors were very perplexed and they they could not, it was hard for them to believe that this man was the same man that they always saw begging. And now he's seeing, how do you explain that? They were thinking. And in fact, we know from verse 11 that Apparently, the the man who was healed knew that it was a Jesus who healed him. And the Jews wanted to know where this Jesus was. He said, I don't know. (laughs) When I came back from washing my eyes, he was gone. But I did have my sight. And in verses 13 through 16 of John 9, we we see that some of the Jews said, well, let's, let's bring Uh, this healed man before the Pharisees and let's ask this man, how did you receive your sight? So the man says, well, this man Jesus applied uh, clay to my eyes. He told me to go wash him and I washed him and I've come back seeing. So what, what what was the response of the Pharisees? Did they have joy in the fact this man who had been born blind was now seeing? Would you not rejoice with someone if you were there and somebody had that affliction? Would you not be joyful with them? We're told in the scriptures to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. We would be, we should be excited if somebody were to come in and do that. Was that their response? No, they're going to start picking at this man. I mean, it was cruel what they were doing to this man who was healed. And it shows the utter wickedness and the darkness, their spiritual blindness. Yeah, he was physically blind and he got his physical sight, but these Pharisees, they're going to stay spiritually blind, which is far worse 
than to be physically blind. Well, verse 16 reveals that there was a division that arose among the Pharisees over this man's, what happened. One group said, well, he, he, there's no way that this Jesus can be of God. Why? Because he had the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. And therefore, Jesus had to be a sinner because it is a great sin to work on the Sabbath. Notice what they said, verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? I said, no, he he can't be a sinner because God wouldn't allow a sinner to do that. And so there was a division that arose among the Sanhedrin at that point. Now, another thing was, another part was um, the fact that in verse 17, the Pharisees asked the, the, the man who was healed, oh, what do you think about Jesus? Notice what, that's what they said, verse 17. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? So what was his response? Well, he's a prophet. That's what he said. Now, just saying that Jesus was a prophet at this point does not necessarily mean you are embracing Jesus as the Messiah. Because we know, we've seen earlier in John, that those who saw the miracles of Jesus, they attributed it to being a prophet, maybe like Moses said, there would become a prophet, but they didn't say that that prophet was necessarily the Messiah. Remember Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus, says, we know you must be a great teacher because no one could do the things you do unless you're sent from God. And at that point, Nicodemus has not embraced the faith. When we were in John 3, I mentioned to you there is evidence that Nicodemus does become a true believer, I believe, later on. Now, in this regard, the parents, they'd said, well, let's, let's settle this because we don't know we don't think this man was really blind. Some are saying, there's no way he's blind. I said, well, let's, we'll, all right, let's bring in his parents. Let's ask the parents, is this your son? So they bring the parents in, say, is this your son? They said, yes, this is our son. And so they, they admit that. But take, take, a, take a look at verse 21 for a moment. Now, the parents are speaking now. It says, but how he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he shall speak for himself. They were lying. Because verse 23 and 22 brings out, it was a lie. Take a look at verse 22 and 23, what it says. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him, that is Jesus, to be the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The parents were cowards. They feared being thrown out of the synagogue. What being thrown out of the synagogue meant was to be excommunicated. That's what that meant. Not only would you be excommunicated from religious activity to be thrown out of the temple had social and commercial implications. You couldn't do business. And so it was a big deal. And they were unreal. They were afraid to admit this 
because they didn't want to be cast out. And so they basically lied. They knew who had healed him because the text says they knew uh, they were afraid. And so they acted out of fear and not by faith. And they were unwilling to consider that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Turn with me to show you the implication of what these parents did. Turn to Matthew chapter 10 and look at verses 32 and 33. Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, verse 33. But whosoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. It is a big deal to publicly confess or deny Jesus, according to Jesus. And if you were to turn over to Romans 10, 9 and 10, it's a great passage. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So what we see here, these parents, they greatly sinned. And we're going to see the son is far more courageous than they, as we're going to see. And he will surpass his parents in integrity. You know, Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And so that really applies to all of us, does it not? As Christians, that you and I should, should publicly confess Jesus, even knowing that we may experience Persecution, being ostracized, maybe being physically persecuted. But are we willing to do it? Are we willing to do it? You know, during the, uh, a lot of the early persecution in the, in, in the early church, what the, the Romans did, the emperors, they would persecute Christians and sometimes they would torture them to deny Jesus and they wouldn't do it. At the, uh, the great council of Nicaea, where Constantine oversaw it, they brought in the elders of all the Roman Empire, the Christian elders, and they have an instance where Constantine went up to some bishop in Egypt whose eye they, they gouged out, and Constantine went and kissed the socket for the fact that he would not deny Jesus even when they gouged his eye out. And so we, we need to confess Jesus, and it's important. And we should not have the fear of man. His parents were fearful of being excommunicated, and therefore they would not speak as they ought to have spoken. Well, in verses 24 and 20 through 27, we see the Pharisees bring, they go get the, the, the blind man, and they bring him, and they asking him, well, how were you healed? And in verse 24, if you notice, they demand the man to give glory to God. Notice what they said. So a second time, they called him in a second time and said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, meaning Jesus. Don't you glorify Jesus. You need to glorify God. You know, that, that famous response of the guy says, uh, that, they said, this, the Pharisees, this man's a sinner. And notice that wonderful response. Um, 
He answered them, I told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I already told you how he healed me. You don't want to become his disciples, do you? Now, what we see here is it's sort of a the, the blind man, the formerly blind man engages in some sarcasm because he says, oh, you don't want to be his disciples, do you? Now, he knew that they weren't going to do it. You don't want to be his disciples, do you? Now, the Pharisees will engage into what I call a logical syllogism, a logical argument here. And here's their logic, all right? To work on the Sabbath is Sabbath breaking. Jesus worked on the Sabbath. To break the Sabbath is to commit a great sin. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Healing is working, hence it is sinful. Therefore, the conclusion, Jesus must be a sinner. Now, you know, you can reason logically, but end up with an unsound argument. You know how you get end up with an unsound argument? Is when your premises are not true. That's how, you know, if you just take it this way, it was illogical from A to B to C, but their conclusion is wrong. Their premise was wrong because they assumed that working, healing, is a work forbidden by the Mosaic Law. That's where they erred. And it was a great uh, error because they're out to kill Jesus, mind you, for healing, working on the Sabbath. And so in verse 25, notice what this, this blind man, uh, what he says. He says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know, but here's one thing I do know. I can see. That's what I do know. So whatever you want to think about this man, I know I've got sight that I didn't have before. So the Pharisees are now engaging this man. Now, here's a man. They they weren't rejoicing in the fact he was, this man was healed, who was born blind. They didn't have any rejoicing in that. And they're going to start theologically trying to pick him apart. And they're going to jump all over him uh, for what Jesus did to him. But the blind man's going to get the best of him here. And so what we see here in verse 28, notice what it says. They begin to revile. The Jews begin to revile this man who was healed. And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we... Oh, we're the disciples of Moses. You're a disciple of this sinner, but we, the learned ones, we're a disciple of Moses. Well, notice the, the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. I think you can be, have we not seen, and Jess has talked about this in his messages, just how wicked the religious leaders were and how they deserved every rebuke that the Lord Jesus gave to them for they were a, a wicked lot. Remember, John the Baptist called them brood of vipers because that's what they were. So the, the Pharisees, they took pride in doing themselves as the, uh, Moses' disciples, but they weren't really Moses' disciples, now were they? Because Moses wouldn't have uh, had no problem with healing on the Sabbath. That was never said that you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. He talked about doing your, your commercial work. That's what was in mind. 
not healing. Remember, in healing, by the way, we ought to take that as one of the reasons why in our confession of faith, what are some of the things that are encouraged that we ought to do on the Sabbath day besides attending worship and singing the praises of God? Doing works of necessity. Mercy. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was showing mercy to this poor man who had been born blind. Now, in verse 29, the Jews say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. In other words, we don't know where this Jesus is from. And in verse 30, uh, the healed man now embarrasses the Pharisees. Because notice what he says in verse 30, the blind man, the formerly blind man. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. Now, that's an accurate statement. David said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my, in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So that formerly blind man made a biblical statement. It is true that uh, if anyone is, uh, uh, verse, well, here's a, we know that he's from God and yet he has opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. By the way, to demonstrate in the New Testament that truth, turn over to 1 John 5. And look at verses 14 and 15, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked from him. Now, there's a lot of theology packed in that, but just to say, you know, the key here is we need to get God to hear us. And one way to get God to hear us is that we do his will. And now we do know <clears throat> when Jesus said, uh, whatever you ask, I will give it to you. We need to learn in our prayers to ask things for the glory of God, not necessarily to make us more comfortable, not that God wouldn't do that. But to be heard of God then is to break through with God. And this, this formerly blind man says, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if he's God-fearing and he does the will of God, <clears throat> he hears him. That is an accurate theological statement. And notice he continues this argument, the, uh, the formerly the healed man. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. So if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. <laughs> he just backed the Pharisees up into the corner. You say he's a sinner. Well, if he's a sinner, God wouldn't hear him. And, and then God would not have done this incredible miracle, but God did this incredible miracle. So, didn't, so God did, did hear him. So this Jesus is in, in close relationship with God. You know what people often do when they realize they've got, been bested in an argument? What do they normally do? 
They engage in an ad hominem argument. They, they just attack. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Look what they said in verse 34. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sins and are you, are you teaching us? Do you know who you're talking to? We're the Pharisees. We're the scribes and the Pharisees. We're the interpreters of the law. We apply the law. Who are you to tell us about this? Well, he did get the best of them. He, he beat them in, the, in their own argument and proved to them that Jesus could not have been a sinner according to their own thinking. So what did they do? They threw him out of the temple. They excommunicated him. They did the very thing that the parents were not willing to at least confess the possibility that Jesus may have healed this man and publicly say that for fear of being excommunicated. This man spoke the truth and he excommunicated him. And here's what's so wonderful. Jesus hears about it. Oh, it's wonderful. Look, look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, now notice that. Jesus had heard that that man was excommunicated. What did Jesus do? He went looking for the man. You know Jesus had to be impressed. He went looking for him and said, do you believe in the Son of God. Now, he answered and said, and who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now remember, he has never seen Jesus. So I, who is he that, that I may believe in him? Now remember in John 6, we looked at in John 6, 37, remember what it says? That all that the Father has given me will come to me and I will certainly not cast out. And so it says, Lord, so when Jesus says, he said to him, verse 37, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believed. I believe and he worshiped him. You know what? <clears throat> There's the saving faith right there. Before he said he was a prophet, but others say he's a prophet. But now, if you tell me who this is, I'll believe in him. You're looking at him. Oh, I believe. And he falls down and worships Jesus. That's when saving faith came. But you see, it's, it's a wonderful story <clears throat> because this man sees, he sees a miracle, a miracle was done upon him. Remember the Jews saw these miracles of Jesus, but guess what? They weren't believing in him. Despite what they saw and what they heard, they still did not believe in him. And in John 8, we saw this. Why didn't they believe in him? Because they were not of God, Jesus says. Everyone who is of God hears me. And because you don't hear you're not of God. In other words, you're not one of the elect. Now, remember, we have a responsibility. There's a mystery there. We may be elect. You know, there's a theological question we ask me in it in Presbytery. <laughs> when we go in the heavy areas on predestination, we end up saying, do you have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved? We've talked about predestination election. He better say yes. <laughs> you 
because you still have to believe. We've got to believe. Here's the point. We saw Paul in <clears throat> Acts 13, 48 says, all that were ordained to eternal life believed. If you're elected, you will believe at some point. And you, so, you know what, what's so wonderful about this? Now you see the greater glory of God, why this man was born blind. Because Jesus says, so that the works of God could be shown. And they were shown in this man who will be led to Jesus to confess him. Just like the Samaritan woman finally realized she was talking, she was talking to the Messiah and then believed and then told her, her community all about him. You got to come see. I think I found the Messiah. Of course, the Pharisees, as we end here, verse 40, well, no, verse 39, and Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. And then the Pharisees, they realized he was talking about them because look, look what they say. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things said, we are not blind too, are we? And notice what Jesus says to them. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains because they didn't believe him, their sin remains. So what we can take away from all of this, Jesus will hunt out particular people to do a wonderful miracle to prove that he's the Messiah, to bring them to himself. And that's what he did to this man who was born blind. What a wonderful thing to have gotten to get your sight back physically. But it was far more wonderful when the man fell down and worshiped Jesus as the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you will search us out till you find us. We praise you for all the, the wonderful miracles that you did that is recorded in Scripture to show that. There is a reason why some can be born with such terrible physically uh, maladies only to see how you use that for your greater glory, just like you did with this man born blind. We magnify your name and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.